Alright, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Scott. I'll give myself a better introduction in a few slides' time. Um, we're going to spend the next hour, roughly, talking about video games, and specifically uh, how we can make them more accessible. Uh, we're going to be looking at one use case example today of using the Azure Cognitive Services API to add text-to-speech to your video game. Um, but we're going to look at the problem space in general, so what sorts of things we do when we're talking about accessibility in games, um, and why I think text-to-speech gets overlooked a little bit. I'm not affiliated with Unity in any way. Um, I don't know how many people here are game developers, but they're all pretty uh, passionate about whichever tool they use. You can use whatever tool you want um, to do what we're talking about today, if that's Unreal or you know, Lumberyard or Godot. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the only thing is that your engine will have to be able to make web requests at editor time or at build time. Um, I'm not sure if all your tools do, but Unity does. Uh, my use case will be in Unity, and some of the gotchas I'll be discussing are also in Unity, but the broad idea in general can be extrapolated to just about any engine. Now, if we're lucky, this will actually play this time. Character. Ultimate Edition. Character. Social. News. Alt. Settings. Progression. So if no one's seen text-to-speech before, that's an example of text-to-speech. I always like to start a presentation with the goal. Uh, it's always nice to know where we're going to end up at the end. This is a long presentation. If you're not interested in that, then um, <laughs> it's going to be a, a very long hour for you. Um, so that was the Division 2. It's made by Ubisoft. It was released earlier this year. Um, this is not the menu that uh, Ubisoft used when uh, when you start the game, but one thing they did really well is before you go uh, see any cutscenes, engage in any play at all, you get dumped into an accessibility menu, which for a AAA studio is actually super rare. And the first option they give you is whether or not you want to turn on that text-to-speech. My presentation's evolved a bit the more I've been working on both the demo and the presentation. Uh, essentially, now we're going to explore a proof of concept that mimics that. It's not going to look that beautiful because I didn't have like 100 artists working on the menu. Uh, but we're going to basically prove that we can do that in Unity and we can actually do it for zero dollars and a pretty small amount of your time. And I'm hopefully going to argue that by the end of the presentation, it's worth your time and energy to make your games more accessible. Uh, just a bit about who I am and why I'm here. Uh, I studied IT, digital media at Flinders. I graduated in 2014, and I loved it, so I stayed and did honours, and I was fortunate enough to receive first-class honours in IT. Uh, the problem I found with the game dev industry, and I was super selfish, I wasn't going to work anywhere but in games. Um, unlike the IT industry as a whole, it's one of those industries, and, and there's lots like this, where as a graduate, you need to have experience, but no one's willing to give it to you. It's just impossible to find work, particularly if you want to stay in South Australia um, or Australia in general. Uh, I'm one of the fortunate few who basically the, the month I graduated, I had contract work fall into my lap. So I started my own business called Boxhead Productions. Uh, and I formed a niche in serious games. So serious games are basically any game that has benefits other than entertainment. And my argument would be that they have to explicitly have benefits other than entertainment. So educational games fall into this category. We're seeing a lot more games in the medical space now doing physical rehabilitation. And we're also looking at cognitive and emotional rehabilitation as well through gamifying systems. Um, Headspace have the Breathe app, uh, which does some of those things. My argument here would be that a serious game has that intention from the ground up. So uh, Minecraft is a fantastic game. gets used in educational setting all the time. There is an educational version of that game. I would call, probably call that a serious game. But Notch's intention when he made that game wasn't to make an educational product. 
Uh, it just so happens that the byproduct of his systems ended up being really good uh, tools. So when I was working with clients, it was it was all about the learning outcomes from the get-go. Um, for example, one of my biggest clients was Minda. So we're working with adults with intellectual disabilities. We have to assume that they can't read. How do we build systems for adults that aren't pandering and, and childish, um, but also get across the message that we're trying to teach? I did that for two years, and it was really fun. But I was worried about stagnating as a programmer. I want to constantly keep learning, and when you're working by yourself, once you find what works, you just keep doing it forever, and you don't get any better. Uh, so I actually got work here full-time in South Australia working at Odd Games. Uh, they make mobile racing games. Their last title was the number one racing game on the App Store for about three years running. Uh, and they've just uh, released the game that I was working on when I was there last year uh, as an open beta. They haven't done uh, much of a song and dance about it, so I won't talk too much about it. But my name is in the credits of another game, which is fantastic. Uh, but for other reasons, that, that wasn't going to work for me, and I ended up at Head Full of Heart. And half the room knows what that's about because <laughs> you all work with me. For those who don't, we're a social enterprise um, aimed at graduates or recent graduates. Uh, in my case, I only had one year of actual industry experience with other teams, so I'm essentially um, a recent graduate despite getting a bit older. And uh, they really just help bootstrap your career. There's obviously lots of benefits to their clients in terms of cost and risk mitigation, but as far as I'm concerned, it's just a good opportunity to become a better programmer, and it's part of the reason that I'm here um, Dan's spoken here before, uh, Jacob, who's not here tonight, has also spoken here before, and it was really inspiring, so I thought I'd give it a go. As part of my studies and running my own business, I also entered my games in the Serious Games Showcase and Challenge Australasia. It's run by Simulation Australasia. It is the local chapter of a global competition. I was a three-time national finalist, which was awesome. The last time I entered, I won, and then I never went back because I was sick of coming second, so I just went out on a high. Um, and that was for my work with Minda, which was fantastic. I helped run the competition for a while, and then I had a child, and life got really hard. So now I just judge, and I've just finished the last round of judging. Um, if you're interested in this space at all, particularly if you're an indie or you're a hobbyist, like, make sure you enter your, what, your projects. Uh, for whatever reason, that category um, really struggles. The industry category gets better and better every year, and we have really good representation from Adelaide. So uh, Monkey Stacks, a digital agency here, they've won the industry award before. Um, and Matt Trobiani, um, you might not know him by name, but if you play video games, you might know about Hacknet. Um, that's made here in Adelaide, and it's a massive game, and that won the, the uh, indie category the second year I came second. So, uh, But that was good, so we've, we've got great representation from Adelaide. Uh, and lastly, I'm a lifetime gamer. It's probably pretty obvious I'm doing a talk about games for an hour, but I think it's always nice to acknowledge what your passions are, what drives you, and sort of why you get out of bed and, and want to use technology every day. I also bring it up to point out that if anyone has paid attention to the news recently, the World Health Organization has now labeled gaming addiction as a classifiable addiction in the same way that gambling or alcoholism is. And this has been a long time coming, maybe five or six years. Um, as a lifetime gamer and a developer, I'm going to be pro games this whole talk. Um, I do understand that they do have social impacts. If you want to discuss that later or bring it up in questions, I'm more than happy to talk about games in the, I guess, social landscape in general. Um, but just because of what we're talking about, games are going to be awesome for the next hour, if that's okay. So that's why we're here and who I am. But why do we actually care about accessibility in general? Why do I have to preach to you that accessibility is a good idea? I'm going to start with a self-serving statement and say that making games is really hard. Of course, making games is really hard. Making anything 
is really hard. Um, I think one of the challenges that game developers have, and I'm going to use Division 2 as an example, um, is that they're spending, I would say, 60 to 80 hours a week, because we know crunch culture exists in games, for three to five years making a product. And it's really easy to lose sight of whether something is balanced very well. Um, how is your audience going to react to the game? And a good game developer should be spending all of their time on those two things. So uh, in Division 2, we have shooting as half the mechanic and looting as the other half of the mechanic. And you should be doing those things roughly every 90 seconds. But how do you know that that feedback loop feels really good? Um, typically, we just play test the games. You know, we do closed betas, open betas. The developers play it forever. We use some math for the loop. Um, but my argument is in this day and age, we can't actually successfully balance a game without adding assistive features. Um, and I think that's because we think of assistive features as features for people with disabilities, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, some of the things we'll be looking at today, you would just consider features of a game, but quite frankly, they really are about accessibility. If we then assume, and this is a big assumption, but if we make the assumption that games are still a hit-driven market, which I think for most AAA titles it probably is, if you want to be the next Fortnite, right, everyone probably in this room knows what Fortnite is, we have to target literally everyone on the face of the planet. So we have to include people that may have disabilities or they may not be able to play a game in a traditional way, which is why I also think we should be dealing with accessibility. So we're going to go through some stats now that are related specifically to Australia. Uh, that's why this slide is up. Uh, it's called the Digital Australia Report, which you can't see at the top there. Uh, it's done in conjunction with Bond University and IGEA. They release one every year, and the next one will probably be out around September. They normally do their first public showing at Simulation Australasia, uh, which I know is later this year. Uh, and this is a fantastic overview of, I guess, how Australians consume game content. I'm going to start with some stats that aren't on the screen, uh, and then I'll circle back to these. But if we want to make games accessible to everyone, first thing we have to do is look at what a gamer is, who, who is a traditional gamer. The pervasive myth is that it's still 14-year-old middle-class uh, white males. Um, that is probably true from a marketing standpoint. They're like super hard to reach and get products to, and games are a fantastic way to get them to buy. Um, so they're still a very sought-after market, but they definitely are not representative of the entire landscape of video game players. So 67% of all Australians play games. If we take a cross-section of Australia, 67% of them are 14-year-old 14, 14 white males. So we already have a massive demographic in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, political views. Um, we get a really wide gamut just here alone. 97% of homes with children have video games, which seems astounding to me. If you look at stats for other countries that have the track adoption rates of things like uh, internet or smartphones, Anything above like 85% is phenomenal. The fact that we're over 90%, approaching 100% for game adoption is massive. Uh, it means that obviously we can afford the luxury of devices here, but also the market has changed so much that kids can actually get into games for nothing. So it means that they're constantly going to be consuming this content. This is screen time that you want people to be engaging with your product and not someone else's. 60% of households in Australia have five or more screens. The platonic family in Australia is still four. Uh, and if we look at birth rates in general, they're going down every year. Not, not as much here, but if you look at countries like America, they have record years where we're having lower and lower birth rates. So families are getting smaller, but we're somehow amassing more screens, uh, which is pretty crazy. But the stats I would like to point out on this slide, uh, for those who might not know, is the average age of a game is 34. It's older than me. So everyone knows I'm still sort of young. Um, 
And that goes up every year, obviously. So when DR19 comes out, it wouldn't surprise me if it was 35 or 36. Eventually, we'll sort of hit the global median age, and we can't really go past that. Um, again, kids don't play games anymore. Everyone plays games. Maybe a surprise to some people. 46% of all game players are female, which mimics roughly their global population. So surprise, surprise, one out of two game players is female, so we can't just cater to males uh, anymore. This starts surprise me a little bit, because I don't think I used to play this many games, but maybe I did. On average, we play 100 minutes a day uh, as males, which is a lot, I would have thought, and 80 minutes a day as females. So um, I don't know where people find the time anymore, but apparently they do. So just alone, if we just consider just everyday normal Australians, that's literally everyone um, that we have to cater for. But let's add some other stats on top. 18.6% of females in Australia have a diagnosed disability and 18% of males, which actually works out to roughly 20% of the entire Australian population. So if two-thirds of us play video games in this room and one-fifth of us have a diagnosed disability, there's a massive overlap in those two communities. My argument is that that 20% of Australians, or just, let's say, the global population, if we extrapolate that to the whole world, is actually really underserved. And they're keen to buy your products. They want to be able to play games with their friends. So whether you just make games for the joy of making them and have as many people play them as possible, or you want to make as much money as you can, you really should be hitting this 20%. Um, We've got that talk coming up about working with China. If someone said you could make your game more accessible and you got 20% of the Chinese market, you'd be crazy not to do it because you'd be a gazillionaire pretty much overnight. So I think that's why we should look at uh, accessibility in games, because gamers are literally everyone, and that's how we're going to make our money. So now we know why we should make our games accessible. Let's do some accessibility 101 real quick. I'm looking at some, some examples of how we deal with accessibility right now in the industry. Some of these examples are a bit older, but they've been chosen sort of intentionally for that reason. Child, tuck yourself in bed and let me tell a story of Lemuria, a long lost kingdom and a girl born for glory. It's a really short snippet of a cutscene from Child of Light, another Ubisoft published game. I just happened to be on an Ubisoft kick this year. Um, I don't know why, I've just finished this one recently. This was actually remastered on Switch and that's how I played it. Um, the prevailing advice will be if you have a narrative driven game, so it is your telling story, and you've got exposition like this cutscenes, you must do voiceover and subtitles. Can't do one or the other. Uh, and this, being in a slightly older game, this was actually released in 2014. Um, this is about as basic as uh, subtitles get, so white sans serif font, black border, pretty decent spacing. I've intentionally chosen this screenshot because it's actually quite washed out, but at least from where I'm standing, that's actually pretty easy to read. Um, newer games will let you often customise the size of the subtitles, sometimes the colour, um, I'd love to see developers start adding different font choices. Um, there's fonts out there for dyslexics now, which I think is really awesome. Um, and essentially, obviously this gives someone either with vision impairment or hearing impairment the opportunity to enjoy the story. Uh, but I use this all the time. I, I always play games with subtitles on. Uh, games still far from my attention. I, I, if I get an hour to sit down and play a game, I'm the happiest guy alive, but there's always going to be something else going on, and so I'm not always going to be able to catch either the voiceover or the subtitles, so I have to have both. And I don't think this is necessarily just for people that have um, some sort of vision impairment or hearing impairment. I think this is just a handy-to-have feature. 
So this is an indie game called Downwell, which was released a couple of years ago now, I think. Um, maybe 2015. And one of the... This is a single-player game, but one of the problems that multiplayer games has a lot is dealing with people who have colour blindness. Um, so this happens a lot in multiplayer games. Uh, I've said this stat out wrong before, so I'll correct myself, even though I, I haven't said it wrong here before. 6.7% of Australians have colour blindness. Um, Red-blue colour blindness happens to manifest a lot in males, uh, and a lot of males tend to play competitive games, and lo and behold, bad guys are always red, good guys are always blue, right? In games where we have mirror matchups, that is, the two teams can have the same colour, you, you run into problems. Uh, so one thing we can do is what Downwell did really well, which is palette swapping, um, but the user picked the colours. Uh, it's always easier than trying to guess. Uh, Downwell's example is a little bit different. Uh, the colours were part of the gameplay mechanic and also part of the... Um, like unlock and progression of the game, but the same still stands. This implementing this is super trivial. Uh, the game was designed for power swapping. It's essentially just three different shades of grey, and when the user selects what colour they want, we just tell the shader, "Oh, actually, instead of making it grey, make it blue." It's really easy to do. Some games you can't do that, or you might not want to do that. So again, like StarCraft or an RTS might be a good example where you've got like Terran versus Terran. It's a mirror matchup. Both teams have colour, but the colour's so small that it doesn't really stand out. You shape or form instead. Um, make all your characters' icons have a circle above their head, and the other team not have any. There's really easy ways for you to make your um, your players, your team, visually distinctive from another team. Uh, but again, color can be a pretty big concern. Um, this one's from Wolfenstein, uh, and I chose this example intentionally because it's actually quite derisive. And when it came out, uh, it was quite contentious. So this is just a Difficulty selection screen. They're in pretty much every game ever, this one has way more difficulties than normal. It was like, there's like three. I'm, I'm surprised they have so many. Um, this one's themed really, really well. <laughs> if anyone's played Wolfenstein, this just totally matches the aesthetic of the game. My argument here would just be very careful about how you go about that. Uh, a lot of people play on easy now just because they're time poor, or they want to see the story, or you know, developers going, cool, the hardest mode we're literally just going to jack up everyone's health and it's actually just boring. And so the game was actually sort of designed uh, to be played on, on easy. So making fun of your users is not great, but providing different difficulty levels is, uh, is worthwhile. I'll just show you the actual video. So... That is well done, and one thing that we're starting to see more now is adaptive difficulty. So the game can just tell when we're struggling, and it sort of implicitly under the hood just changes values for us, and we don't know that it's happening. And that's a really good feature. Uh, I've been playing Mortal Kombat 11 recently, and I have a feeling that does that under the hood. I can't tell, but in story mode, I'll pick it up. I haven't played it for a week. In the first two or three games, the AI is all, like, literally all over me. I can't do anything. And then two or three games later, it feels like they're standing still. Um, I don't know if that's just because I get my eye back in, but I have a feeling the game's helping me, and it's fantastic because I'm actually getting to progress through the story. As someone who doesn't get to play it very often, I don't really care about how hard it is. I just want to see the cutscenes. Um, so if you can if you can put adaptive dif difficulty in your game, I would do it. No matter how your body is or how fast you are, you can play. It's a really good thing to have in this world. And some of you might have seen that ad before, so I cut it down a lot. That's a product made by Microsoft called the Adaptive Controller. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I couldn't see it very well. I think of it like a big, uh, like, 
Nintendo gamepad, big square gamepad. It's got two buttons on it, A and B. And then around the outside of the gamepad are 3.5mm jacks. You can plug in any peripheral, as long as that peripheral gives you a 0 to 1 input. You can map it to anything. Um, I think it's a really fantastic product in theory. I haven't actually got to sit down and play with one, unfortunately. Um, look, my argument here would be if you have to supply hardware to your users, though, you're probably failing somewhere else in the design phase. Um, if you're working in a niche like uh, medical rehabilitation, then that's that's acceptable. But I wouldn't rely on your users to have to go out and buy custom hardware. It's expensive, it breaks. Uh, the, the adaptive controller in particular doesn't come with peripherals. The idea is you're supposed to sort of make your own or source your own from another supplier. So while it does make literally any game accessible, there are hurdles to go through to get that far. Um, probably the coolest feature of that, that controller, if no one knows much about it, is uh, you can actually plug your own controller into it. So if you're playing with a friend or a sibling, um, and they maybe don't have good fine motor control, but they can push buttons really well. You could actually basically do the character locomotion in assist mode, and they could do everything else. Um, so really, really, really neat product, and I think um, really, I don't know, Microsoft's ethos has changed a lot recently. They're trying to be very open source and include everyone. I think this is a really good distillation of that idea that everyone should be involved in, in what they do. Um, so one day I'll get to use it. So that's all the examples I have for accessibility. And I bring them up because you'll notice the text-to-speech isn't mentioned in any of them. And that's pretty much the core discourse on accessibility online. If you look at YouTube videos or articles, they're the things that they'll tell you to hit. And I think text-to-speech gets missed partly because it's not very sexy. Like, if you're going to do text-to-speech, you might as well do voiceover, I think is the argument that everyone makes. If anyone's bought an audiobook, though, you'll know that voiceover is horrendously expensive to make. Studio time for an artist and an audio engineer to cut all that up uh, is costly. And it affects the way you build your game. You can't just decide three months before you ship, oh, we need to change half the, the content here because you can't be reactive and get that artist back in the studio and re-record things. So I think text-to-speech has a lot of benefits, and I think it's a fantastic way for indies to sort of get into the accessibility game. So we'll get to a demo in a second. But first, we're going to go through an example use case. Uh, I have created an alternate universe, and in this alternate universe, I've won like 10 million bucks, so I don't really need to work anymore. I'm just going to live off my interest and have some fun and make games. Not that it's important to this talk, but I'm also really good looking in the alternate universe, which is really awesome. <laughs> um, so I've created an indie team, and we're making a brand new product. It's a first-person shooter. Uh, it's myself as a full-time developer. I have a full-time artist, and I have a half-time developer slash business person. And we decide that we're going to do an open beta. Or sorry, a closed beta, but we're going to do open signups for that. Now, we think our game is good for people that have never played first-person shooters before. So that's how we want to define our audience. Um, so we go and ask the typical slew of questions that you ask for a beta normally. So age, gender, where you're from, maybe previous game experiences, other hobbies. And of course, we take a small section of those players that are just avid first-person shooter fans because they're going to inform a lot of our mechanics. And of course, we might want to get into esports one day, so we have to make sure that we have a really strong product to move in that direction. But most of our focus is on players that have never played first-person shooters before. And we come across Charlotte Brooks. Charlotte Brooks is not real, and I've not stolen anyone's photos. She is a randomly generated user.me profile. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's really good for seeding your APIs and databases with fake users. They give you um, profile pictures and everything. I obviously Photoshop the rest, but uh, all the details are not stolen. 
So in this alternate universe, Charlotte Brooks is 17. She's from South Australia, which is one of the reasons we picked her. She has an unhealthy attachment to string cheese and cats. Uh, and she loves puzzle games. She's been playing puzzle games since she was 12. But she's super excited about her game. So we, we thought she'd be perfect. Uh, of course, females particularly in the shooter space are underrepresented. She's local, so if we ever want to do any outreach or have any brand ambassadors, she's nice and close. She's 17, so she's probably working. If she's not, she lives at home and her parents definitely are, so she can afford our game and she can probably afford our microtransactions. And of course, not being a first-person shooter player, she fits into this category that we're trying to grab of uh, inexperienced first-person shooter players. So let's head over to the demo. I'm clearly talking very fast because about five minutes ahead of time, maybe ten. So we've got a bit of time. I'll slow down. So this is my hot new game called Rudy 2D Space Gun Shooty. <laughs> um, this is the only part of the game. There is no real game. It's just a menu. Uh, but for the sake of our demo, we'll pretend that there is more to Rudy 2D Space Gun Shooty. Uh, so this is, this is a fully functional menu. Uh, the buttons feel like they do nothing. Uh, you can see I've got some sort of debug stuff up here, and I've just got buttons perform actions turn off. But these are registering input. I'm clicking on them. They're actually saying, hey, I'm receiving input. I'm receiving a mouse, mouse uh, hover, mouse exit. And this is just a really bad menu. Yeah. So, but we love it because we worked for a long time on it, and we think it's awesome. But two weeks into our uh, closed beta, we get an email from Charlotte. It says, your game is fantastic. The shooting feels really visceral. There's something about it that just makes me want to, like, keep shooting people. Your character design feels really good. And the pace of the game is such that I feel like I can contribute even though I've never played a first-person shooter before. So we've, in terms of the gameplay, we've just hit all the, all the metrics. But she says she doesn't like our menus and that she really struggles with them. So... I get my full-time artist over, showing the email. He yells at me, tells me I'm an idiot, and I know nothing about design, and storms off, which is pretty common if you've worked with uh, pet <laughs> artists before. <laughs> Sorry for any of you artists here, but um, they don't like uh, programmers. So he comes back after a while. He says, look, you're right, but I don't have time to fix it. I need to fix stuff in the game. We just need to do whatever we can to solve the problem. So I get an intern in, and I say to the intern, fix it. So he... He goes away for a while, comes back, he gives me some animation. They click on the buttons, they go grey. Feels better. You can only see what button you're using now. They get slightly bigger. Obviously, we're highlighting the bug we're on. At least it feels like the menu is reacting to my input. It's a good start. It doesn't, it still feels floaty. It doesn't feel real. I don't know, it's not tangible. So, might be a little hard to hear, but let's just add some sounds now. This, this thing feels physical. Feels nice to move your mouse over the buttons. Now this might just be like UX 101 to a lot of people in this room, but to me this is accessibility. Uh, a lot of people would just say that menu is badly designed, or a term I hear a lot with really big heavy menus or games is that they're impenetrable. They're not impenetrable, they just you just can't use them, they're not accessible. If I don't enjoy this experience, I'm going to bounce off the game and play something else. Um, so I think when you're doing your design, keep in mind that things like this actually make your product much more usable. So we decided to do a special build just for Charlotte, because so, that took you know two whole days, so heaps of work. So we send it to her, she downloads it, and she says, no, I'm sorry. And like, yeah, I can see the animations, but I still don't like the menu, really. It doesn't, doesn't work for me. 
And it takes a bit of back and forth, but we finally tease out of her that she's vision impaired. And she's just a bit embarrassed about it, so she doesn't like to talk about it very much. So I go home one night. I'm supposed to play Mortal Kombat 11, but I can't stop thinking about it. So instead, I make this shader to my product. So let's turn that down a bit. And this gives me a pretty good indication of how someone with a vision impairment might potentially see my menu. And all of a sudden, you can see this is like really hard to work with. Um, I've never played a game where Exit is on top. Players are like play, campaign, story, whatever the main thing in your game is should always be the first button, and it probably should actually be bigger than the other buttons. But I can't take for granted that Charlotte's played any games before. She's told me she's played puzzle games, but I don't actually know that to be the truth. So because play and exit are pretty similar in length, yeah, I, I can see why someone with a vision impairment might struggle with my menu. So we discuss what options we have, and of course, hence the presentation, we decide to add text-to-speech. Options. Accent. Play. Of course. And this is blurry. Options. It's like, this is not ambiguous at all now. It's very obvious what I'm doing. Now, of course, this is a really simple menu. If you went in the options menu, for example, that had a lot of sliders, a lot of settings, and was densely packed, uh, that would just not be navigable with this sort of vision. Of course, it's pretty bad vision, but there are people out there that exist like this. Uh, and my menu's been basically transformed by adding text-to-speech, and it was actually a fairly simple process, which we'll go through in a minute. So Charlotte's really happy with that rebuild, obviously, because she can use the menus. While we're doing this, though, in this alternate universe where I'm going to be really famous, a Twitch, the famous Twitch streamer in France tweets about this, and like it blows up, it goes viral overnight. So the business guy comes in all sweaty the next morning, he's like run from the train, and he's like, what are we doing? No one can play this game in French. So we're going to release it on launch day, and we're going to lose half the French market because no one understands what our menus do. So now he makes me drop everything, even though I'm trying to finish the game, and localize it, which is actually a pretty big deal. So we're going to pretend that like that was non-trivial to do, because I obviously built the ground, this from the ground up with localization in mind. But now my game's in French. Don't change the name because it's a proper name. So. And all my text-to-speech is now in French as well. And I didn't actually have to change anything, which we'll talk about in a minute. That just works uh, sort of out of the box with Azure Cognitive Services. And then just for completeness, say we'll have a tap. We'll have a and I have to do my favourite. I do it every time I practice the presentation. <laughs> so, basically, every part of this game, or this menu now, is accessible, uh, and it all happens from the one system. Uh, and I'll go through sort of the high-level implementation of that in a minute. But once you've got the framework down, it's super easy to extend, and it sort of just works. So one last thing I'll do, let's put it back in English. So I've turned the text to speech off for a second, but when I click this button, we get a modal. The modal is going to do is ask me to put in my name. I'll just get someone to give me a random English word in a second. And it's hopefully, assuming my internet's still connected, will give me runtime text to speech as well, uh, which is sort of handy. Uh, we'll talk about some of the caveats of runtime text to speech in a second. But that's what we intend to achieve. The reason I bring that up 
I've got one more trick. It's hopefully impressive to be want to do. Um, this button just randoms <laughs> these buttons across the screen. All right, this seems like a trivial use case, but I made this menu so I know exactly where all the buttons are. Make the screen black. And now I don't know where any of the buttons are because it's just done that shitty nonsense. I know roughly where they are vertically, but I've got no idea where they are horizontally. So if I do this right now, I could sort of find them, but I've got no idea what they are. So this, this mimics obviously a use case of someone that's got no sight at all. My product would not be for someone that's, that, that has no sight. Like at the end of the day, a first-person shooter requires you to be able to visually tell what's going on. But there are plenty of games like first-person shooters or turn-based strategy games that if you really wanted to, you could play without seeing if you had enough assistance. So let's turn that on. Options. Yeah, yeah, somewhere. Options. No. Play. There you go. Am I on it? Play. There we go, now I am. Please enter your name. Somebody give me a random word. Potato. Potato. <laughs> okay. Yay. Potato. Potato. <laughs> so, you can see that that, that menu is entirely functional without me being able to see, which, to be honest, for, the, for this demo was like, Two days worth of work. If you want to do it properly, it's probably a week, but I think that's a trivial amount of uh, effort in order to make your games uh, really accessible. So that's my proof of concept. So we know that it works, which is a good start. So let's talk about how I solved the problem. Now, as we discussed on the title slide, I use the Microsoft Azure Cognitive Services API. Um, Google actually have a variant for text-to-speech. I was actually going to use that first, and I went to their website, and I hit play demo, and it didn't work. So uh, not a glowing, I guess, review of their product. Um, I'm sure it's very similar, but I decided to go to the Microsoft ecosystem because um, I hadn't used it before as well. So the Azure Cognitive Services are just API-assisted endpoints. These are functions you couldn't do probably even 12 months ago without having a lot of hardware, right, to do all this crunching and a lot of data, um, and they'll do it for you. They're all free or cheap. Um, so, of course, I'm looking at the speech API, which does, I didn't realize I did translation until I got this slide. I could have not used Google Translate to do my strings in my game, but I did. Uh, they do text-to-speech, speech-to-text. Language I'm really interested in, uh, particularly sentiment evaluation. I would love to see how companies could utilize that in multiplayer games to do with toxicity, um, or maybe even in the right sort of sense of the word good behavior, if they can determine people are being nice to each other, and then perhaps that play get a bonus, I think that would be useful. I know companies like Riot do look at those things. Uh, the Vision API might be useful for things like uh, image recognition, you put Bing in your game, that'd be sort of cool, I guess. <laughs> uh, and I don't know really why you use the decision, uh, they just Decision uh, API might be good for some sort of AI-generated um, opponent, potentially, or what we do see sometimes now with game testing, if we have a, a team that's got the budget or the time, they'll actually make an AI to play the levels for them. This is sort of really good in platformers. If you're not sure that the player can actually get through the level, you can maybe do some cool decision stuff with AI to try to solve some of those problems. Uh, the pricing model for speech is... I thought it was weird, but maybe this is normal. They charge you per character, so per letter, uh, which not per request, which I thought was a bit weird. 
Uh, and they've got two different types of voices. So the voice you heard on mine, and I would say pretty similar to the one you heard in Division, is what you call the standard voice. It's a very halting, very robotic, very of colder call center voice. Uh, you get five million characters of those a month in the free tier, which I think is pretty generous. I can see you blowing into that budget pretty quick. Um, but as a hobbyist or an indie, that's that's huge. Then they have their neural voices, which are the more... They still sound like Uncanny Valley, slightly robot but I think there's actually AI under the hood making them sound more human. You get half a million of those a month, so you'll definitely burn through those. The biggest caveat to the free version of the speech API, one concurrent request. So the more text you add to your game, the longer your build times. Uh, if you're doing runtime, text-to-speech generation, and you have more than one player, uh, you might you might have a few issues, uh, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So this is the basic pattern for localization, if no one's seen it. This is obviously just an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, how you choose to implement it in your game is up to you. Uh, one note, though, don't use Excel to do uh, localization. It, for starters, if you try to export to CSV, you're going to have a horrible time if your strings have commas in them. Uh, and it doesn't do very well with character sets that have you know, lots of characters. So like Korean and Arabic, we had a lot of trouble with in our last game. Uh, we moved to XML. The problem with editing XML is there's not a lot of tools that will let you like, sort of pretty uh, edit XML. You said, I actually have to edit the XML. And that's hard because translators want to work with something like Excel. Uh, so just be aware that when you are trying to implement this pattern, um, I guess identify what languages you want to use up front and see what the caveats of those typesets are because uh, you will have issues. Uh, but essentially, uh, localization, if you've never done it, is just a dictionary. In this case, it's a dictionary of dictionaries. So we've got a dictionary of language keys and then we've got a dictionary of actual like in-game keys. Uh, and we just parse that file, whether it's JSON, XML, CSV, doesn't really matter. And we build out those dictionaries. For my demo, I just load them all. It's nice and easy. On mobile, you probably just load, make one dictionary and you just load whatever the player's preference is, which is probably probably defaults to English. It's whatever your language is that you made it in. If you're not planning on localizing your game, still do this, because one of the reasons I think it's great is it actually standardizes your language. Uh, in our last game, we actually came across instances um, as we were porting over to our localization uh, engine where we had OK with a lowercase k, an uppercase k, and the full word, OK, A-Y, uh, because each developer just put the string in. So uh, if you do it this way, then you have a pretty good idea of what your language should look like. Helps you eliminate strings where you've got essentially, you know, like one person's put a comma in or someone's put an and in, but the, for all intents and purposes, they're the same semantic content. Uh, so I think the localization is really good for that. It also gives you a good spot to see all the text in your game which if you want to do something like add text-to-speech, probably gives you a good idea of how many characters you need to uh, generate every month, which will give you a good idea of how much it would potentially cost you. We didn't do this, but one thing we really wanted to do with the last product was actually like also add a mocking service for language to deal with like random edge cases for things, really long usernames, uh, right-to-left text, basically destroys UI. Always, like, you don't think it will, you think it'll be fine, it never works, you should almost always have a different UI for right to left text, because um, the alignment's always wrong. Uh, it's also good, in general, just for filling with gunk data, so uh, we obviously don't, well, none of us at our job knew Korean, but we just went and got a lot of Korean phrases and put them in, because Korean fonts actually are very different size to a lot of Western fonts, 
And so we just had issues where we wanted to see what it might look like if we wanted to localize into a different language and sort of what the other costs of not just making the localization service, but do we need to create a custom UI purely for Korea, for example, or for China? Um, so that, that was pretty useful. We didn't go as far as we could have with the mocking. And for our text-to-speech implementation, it's just an extension of this. So it's bolt on text-to-speech as part of that, which is why I think you should also just always do this pattern, even if it's in English, because if you change your mind, you already have all the boilerplate you need to include your text-to-speech. So I'm not going to go through the actual nitty-gritty uh, and show any code, because I think I'm now of the opinion the more that I write code, the code should just be written for the job at hand. It's nice to have generic code, and we'll have util functions and that sort of stuff, but you end up writing a, a wrapper around your generic code anyway for your specific problem, uh, and you'll have varying requirements based on what type of game you're making, what platform it's on, uh, how much text there is, all sorts. But it's just a very simple... Uh, API consumption pattern, right? So edit the time when we're making a game. We fire off some event, and I'll show you two ways I do that. Uh, basically, it says, hey, speech API, please go get me some audio. You get the audio back, and I save it to a folder. Like, that's about as hard as it gets. And the reason I'm not showing you code is because you can literally copy-paste the example code out of the Microsoft Docs, and it will just work with some caveats that we'll go through. But you don't actually have to change the function that says, please go get me the file, aside from adding your API key and maybe changing your endpoints. Uh, so it really is quite simple. And then at runtime, it's the opposite. I don't know why. That, I should have put that image. It seems weird to go right to left. But at runtime, we already have the file stored locally, so we just ask for it off the disk, and then we play it in our game. Like it, it is literally that simple. There's a few wrappers you need to to sort of make and you need to make it work, but uh, the actual process of adding types of speech to your game is quite easy. So before we jump into Unity and actually, I guess, show a few uh, non-code examples of how it works, some gotchas. Unity, you can't do this in versions of Unity that are older than 2017.1, which sounds really old, but I have a legacy project that's on 5.6 that I'll never be able to update, so I could never add this to my game. The reason for that, if you don't know, is Unity actually forked uh, Mono, and they ran their own uh, Mono for a while. And as a result, up until 2017, we were stuck on uh, .NET 2. Actually, subset 2. You had to you had to go and flick a toggle to get the entirety of 2. Uh, so that was actually really frustrating. We had uh, lots of things that are convenience methods now in C Sharp we couldn't use. They've since moved away from that. I think we're at .NET 6 or 7 now. Uh, and they're apparently going to start supporting the Roslyn um, compiler soon. As you'll see here, .NET Core is still not supported. Uh, so just be a little bit careful. The reason I mentioned that is because HTTP client is, was not in their original subset of um, uh, of code, and the Unity networking API is very limited. It's designed to work in their ecosystem, so we can't do things like add certain headers. One of them is the Keep Alive header, which I needed for the API. I couldn't add it, so I had to use HTTP client, which means I had to use a version of Unity that uh, allowed me to, to pull in other DLLs. Because this is, I would say, fairly new, Unity keeps changing the way that importing these libraries works, which means that if you do want to go through this, their example documentation, the example library they pull in is HTTP client, which is actually really handy. But depending on what version of the docs you look at, and Google's horrible at indexing the right one, you might have some hiccups. So in Unity 2017 and early 2018, you have to be very specific about manually including this DLL. 
In 2018.2, it just doesn't work. Uh, and 2018.3, which is what I'm using, it just magically hooks itself together. So uh, it can take some time to just get this up and running. It took me, I would set aside a night and just muck around and just get it working and then try to, uh, you know, create a new pattern for your game specifically. Uh, in this last slide, I said save files to the resources folder. Don't save files to the resources folder ever. Um, <laughs> the reason I did this with demos, it's nice and easy. Uh, this is sort of an aside, but I just don't want to give bad advice when I'm telling people how to make games. The resources folder in Unity, if you go to the documentation, it even says don't use the resources folder. Uh, the way it works is in the editor, you can have a million resource folders at all different hierarchies, and then at build time, it munges them all up into one big folder, which is actually really nice because then you know where stuff is. Uh, the problem with that is when you then request a file from that folder, it actually has to index every file in that folder, pull out some metadata about it, and then actually load your file. So, you know, if you're thinking of a game like, I don't know, Red Dead, that's like a 100 gig, and you've dumped all your assets in that resources folder, that becomes non-performant very quickly. So if you are going to do this properly, don't use the resources folder. Uh, look at asset bundles, they're not great either. Um, you know, you sort of acknowledge the fact that this sort of resource management stuff for these extra bits and pieces is a bit clunky, and it's in their pipeline, but uh, if you start a game tonight, please use asset bundles. Again, not directly related, but UGET's not officially supported through Unity because every time you um, open Visual Studio through Unity, it actually re re rebuilds the solution file. Uh, so any UGET packages you have get dropped off. You can sort of add them in. The only reason I bring it up is if you find another text-to-speech alternative that has a UGET package or you want to add other accessibility features that have a UGET package, it might not be as easy as you think to get them into your project. Again, this is one of those things that Unity has acknowledged sucks, and now they've moved to support the entire C-sharp ecosystem. They acknowledge that people are going to want to start bringing UGET packages in, so that will probably change, but as of right now, please don't try to do that. You'll be in a lot of hurt. Anyone that's worked with async functions would know they're a virus in C-sharp. Once you start, you can't stop. That's really hard in games because games are essentially entirely synchronous. We will do things in other threads, um, but one of the, the tricky things about game development is we have 60 frames a second, so we have 16 milliseconds to run the entire game loop and render it in an ideal world. I know that's not always true. We can offload some things to other threads, but because we're essentially trying to run async calls now in a very synchronous environment, you can do it. Uh, the way I solved it is you basically have an async function uh, it's like a sort of entry point that you call synchronously and that awaits on another async function. But because you're then calling that synchronously, you have to be careful about how your code sort of falls out the bottom of that function and what else it's going to do. Uh, so just keep in mind that when you are using async in Unity, it's doable, it's frustrating. Uh, I have seen some solutions that take the built-in coroutine, which is their sort of async uh, object, and people have made wrappers to work with async objects. <laughs> uh, but just keep in mind that it will take a bit of finessing to get right, but once you've got it right, it seems pretty solid. Uh, and lastly, Unity API calls can only be made on the main thread, which uh, is really annoying, uh, particularly because if I ask for application.datapath, which is sort of the assets folder in the editor, which we'll see in a second, that's technically an API call to Unity. So when I'm trying <laughs> to save a file to disk that I've just got from a HTTP client, I'm not allowed to make that call. I see we'll have a few issues too where you have to like grab certain API-related um, information in your main thread and push it into your second thread. And again, this is all doable. I guess just be aware that some of these gotchas will slow you down uh, in the 
I guess, initial scaffolding phase. And this is very uh, classic Unity. And I say that because if you've ever worked on a large Unity project, um, you'll find that the developers spend more time fighting Unity than they do just using the tool. Uh, and I personally find that pretty frustrating. Uh, I know we like to think that we can always build things better than the people that made it, but quite frankly, Unity is actually a pretty, pretty solid tool. So the way that I solved this the first time, which I'll show you in a second, is actually the Unity way. So if no one has used Unity before, we have this, uh, this idea of uh, game objects. Game objects are physical objects in a scene. So they have a transform, they have an XYZ position. For all intents and purposes, they're a thing. Sometimes they're empty. Uh, I use them to, to throw things like uh, um, manager scripts on. And when we, uh, when we do that, when we have a game object in the scene, we then attach money behaviors to those game objects and they manipulate that game object. And they also get all the benefits of the Unity lifecycle. So, um, you know, when did this thing wake up? When was its first frame run? When was it enabled, disabled, destroyed? All those sorts of cool um, lifecycle functions that we need really in Unity and to take advantage of coroutines and other iterators that Unity wants you to use. And then we hook it up in the editor. So the whole point of Unity is it's supposed to be a, a visual tool uh, the reason that programmers tend to get a little bit grumpy at this step is because the easiest way to make something serializable in the Unity editor is to make the variable public. There are other ways to do it, but that's the easiest way. So if you've been working with programmers that have been coding for five or ten years, say, and they come over to Unity, they get real mad because they're like, no, my code encapsulation's broken. Um, another problem with that is if I do serialize something in the editor, so public int speed is one, for example, so a bullet and its initial speed is 1. And then I'm going to change the value in the editor to 10. stays at 10 because the editor says this value should be 10. But I'm trying to debug it as a program and I'm like, this is 1. So uh, you start to lose information about where the, the value changes are coming from. And this is why a lot of programs are like, don't do anything in Unity. Do it all yourself and just get Unity to build the, pro the, the project. Um, the Unity way is, is very manual. But the benefit of this way for me is that I could actually generate that text-to-speech immediately and test it straight away, which is really nice. Uh, I could add some nice visual confirmation of how my text-to-speech was running, which, again, is super nice because sometimes it's hard to debug those things. Like, is that file on disk? Is it not on disk? Uh, but it's very easy to miss files, and it won't work in situations where the thing you're trying to translate doesn't actually have a physical object. So if we make the argument that voiceover is too expensive and we're going to use text-to-speech to basically narrate all of our story dialogue. How do I do that if I don't have a physical object I can basically click on and say generate text-to-speech for this? But if we have a quick look over here... Text... So, I'm not going to bother showing the actual code for this because it's, it's a little irrelevant, but this is essentially a game object in Unity. So it's got a, this is a canvas element, so it's a rect transform as opposed to a normal transform. Uh, it's got a canvas renderer so I can see it. And then I've got this text. This is my default value for this text. And I've added this, this localizer. And all it's asking for in this case is like, what's the, what's the string that I actually want to display when the game's running? In this case, I want it to be whatever menu.play is for my language. So of course in English it's play. French, it's usual, whatever it was, another, another one. Uh, and whether or not I actually want 
how I want the user to interact with it. So for me, it was just whether or not I want to play when people hover over it. I could add other functions. But what this does, what I can do if I'm, I'm creating my own uh, editor script here. So this custom editor basically sort of overlaps over my class and just renders some of the properties of that class and I can do some cool stuff with it, interact with it. So if I accidentally typo my uh, text localizer, it's a bit hard to read that, but it basically says it's unable to find a valid localization key for this element. So all of a sudden, like straight away as a developer, I know I've stuffed something up. Either I've forgotten to add it, which is fine, or I've typoed it. And the case where I have added it, maybe I didn't refresh the file properly so I can go and reload the file into memory. But chances are I've just made a mistake. So I'll fix up my key and it will go away. Not big noodle. Big noodle's not, uh, not super useful. All right, so if we go to the project, we'll see how spotty my Wi-Fi is. So let's say I delete this folder. Please work. I can do similar sorts of things. So, uh, okay, that text localizer's fine, that one's fine, that one's fine, that one's fine. Hey, I got a big red, put a big, big red exclamation mark. What's going here? It's not enough localization files. In this instance, I have two errors. I have one if there's not enough and one if there's too many. It doesn't really matter. I don't know why I did that, but I did. So I go, okay, cool. I should probably generate some text to speech. So I push a button. Hopefully the internet's connected. Goes away. Grabs some files. Saves them, and my warning goes away. So this is this is the unique way to do it, right? The hard part there is, the other hard part there is, I have to go through this every time, and if I have lots of scenes, that's time-consuming, and it requires me to be vigilant. The other problem that I thought of the other day was, I could have the right number of files, but if I've actually changed what the text says in my localization tool and haven't refreshed the files, my text-to-speech is going to be out of sync with my localization. So this is the unique way to do it. It's easy. You can write that custom editor script in like 20 minutes. Just works, and it's good to bootstrap you and get you going. And of course, uh, you don't need to build the game to test it. But as tech people, we, we want to do the, the automatic way as much as we can. This implementation will sort of be up to you. Um, Writing editor scripts is very verbose and messy, and I borrowed heavily from my last employer's attempt at that um, and customized it for my needs, and probably shouldn't tell you exactly how they did it. Not that it's a it's a secret, but I just think it would be uh, not fair without having asked them. But essentially, you want to, you want to do these three phases. You want to do a pre-build phase, then build the actual product, and then a post-build phase. The key here is that that pre-build phase needs to be asynchronous. Uh, because that's where you're going to make your calls to localization. Uh, the basic crux of the automatic way is we're going to use scriptable objects. They are a mono behavior for all intents and purposes as far as you use concerned, but they are serializable. So they save, so you can save them to disk, which means they persist in, uh, in Git and in your, whatever your source control is, which is really handy. Um, and they're actually editable in the Unity editor as well. So if you need to go in there and tweak some values, you can do that uh, in the Unity editor. We use the Unity build pipeline, uh, which means, again, we can do this automatically. A note is that CICD with Unity is tricky. Um, Jacob did a talk a couple of months ago about the benefits of continuous integration, continuous deployment. My original talk was actually going to be about CICD for Unity until it just crushed me. Um, <laughs> we did it at our last job, 
I think the key takeaway from that is because we're doing it on-prem. Uh, it's very hard to find a service online that offers Windows machines. Some offer Mac machines, uh, but you get there are lots of limitations to building with the Unity editor, and the batch mode, the headless mode for CRCD is just clunky. Uh, we had issues where we would have to literally open it, wait a minute or two to let everything reserialize, close it, because we'd obviously pulled down a new um, sort of Git branch and so things had changed, and then open it again and, and try and build it, and it's really messy. But at least if you do it the automatic way and you decide to implement CRCD, you can throw errors if your text-to-speech fails, and so you can fail builds, which is really good. You won't miss any files, obviously, if you're doing it the automatic way. It's just you'll load your entire localization script and just run through everything. Again, uh, one of the things we discussed is uh, that you've only got one concurrent request on the free tier, so your, uh, your build times go up, I guess, exponentially every time you add a new localization file, that's going to add another another for loop, essentially, to go through, so your build times could get drastically, drastically large. I would think if you're at the point, though, where, you, where you're dealing with that much content, you might consider spinning this out into another service anyway, um, and it might be advisable to then do things like check which text strings have actually changed, maybe do a diff and only regenerate the new ones, and that way you're going to stay well under your 5 million character limit. As soon as you have a few languages, you're going to burn through 5 million characters really quickly. So, again, I won't go into code too much, but essentially the way the automatic version works, I've created my own custom build window here. If I open this build window, which is the Unity build window, clicking that build button is exactly the same as me clicking this build button. Um, I'm taking advantage of scriptable objects, which save information about um, the way I would normally do it. Is my scriptable object, my base class is an abstract class that is just a, a build platform. I then normally make another abstract class, which is a which is a build platform for my game specifically. So it might do things like always make sure the package name's Rudy Tutti Space Game Tutti. Um, it might pull in libraries that I know are going to be everywhere. And then I would, again, because games love inheritance, I would then do another layer of inheritance, which is actually the physical platform that I want to build for. And that's going to set platform-specific things like on Android it will set the bundle identifier, weirdly... Um, Android and iOS, people tend to swap their bundle identifiers for some weird reason, or at least we we did. We had like au.com.whatever for Android, but we had the opposite way for iOS. Um, you'll want to set different graphics settings, and this is probably where you're going to want to do your text-to-speech generation. Uh, and the reason I say that is you may, particularly for targeting phones, only want to generate text-to-speech for a subset of your game. Um, and then maybe have another service that actually has the entire catalog, and then a user can maybe pull down other localizations at runtime, because you want your package to be really small on on phones, and a bare-bones Unity install with absolutely nothing in it is 30 meg, which is huge for mobile. It's, it's, um, it's actually pretty bad. Uh, they're working on turning that into more of a PWA, so you can get like a 2 meg download, and then it bootstraps itself as it goes. Uh, but this here takes care of everything for me, uh, if I run this now, it would just do a build because I have all my text-to-speech. Uh, but the build times were fairly long, and I did encounter issues where if I had made too many back-to-back -to -back requests too, it would just sort of die, and it would just stop, and I, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't fail. It would just sort of sit there and hang and wait for a key. So you'd also probably have to throw some delays in there to make sure like things are being closed properly and not hitting the current limits. So look, the free tier is a little messy, but I think it works fairly well. I mean, it, it cost me nothing to do, so I think that, that right there is a benefit in itself. 
The only downside to that, again, is you need to build it to test it. So games take a while to build. Uh, our last game, uh, that game I was working on was like a 45-minute build. If you're changing like one string and you just want to test something, like you can't wait 45 minutes. So I think having the benefit of both is super handy if your text-to-speech system is clever enough to sort of pick up those diffs and changes and uh, sort of take everyone's local changes on board. Uh, you probably have a pretty robust system that works well and is testable immediately. So actually... I'm doing around time. I'm not talking too fast. So, some closing thoughts. That proof of concept was super quick to implement. So, half a night to work out all the quirks of why won't HTTP client work with Unity, or why will it build with Unity, but then IntelliSense doesn't work in Visual Studio, all that sort of fun stuff. That was half a night. Uh, and then it was about two full days of work, which, of course, in the evenings is about two weeks worth of work. But... Um, you know, for 16 hours worth of work, I think that's a pretty good outcome, um, especially if you're going to do it in multiple languages. And I had to also roll my localization at the same time. I wasn't just implementing text-to-speech. Free to implement, so just try it anyway. Right, you'd be crazy not to. As I mentioned, difficult to scale in terms of uh, multiple, multiple builds going through and having really long build times. Uh, and, of course, if you want to support user-generated content on runtime text-to-speech. Like, you just... The Azure model is you either get capped and bad luck or your credit card just catches on fire. Like, there's no in, there's no in-between. And that's designed like that for a reason, um, but it makes it hard to do things on free tier. Um, I think there'd be a good use case for something like a Super Mario Maker where players can create their own levels, then end the level, they upload it. Um, in this instance, I'd probably offload another service that just goes, oh, cool, we don't have text-to-speech for that yet. Let's pop it on a queue. When we can get to it, we'll generate it. And then next time the user pulls it down, they will have, also have their accessibility features. If it's not there immediately, like, sort of bad luck. Um, but there are ways to, I think, make that work at scale. Uh, it just wouldn't be good for actual runtime. Um, I need it now, text-to-speech. And uh, I think, yeah, in closing, I'll, I'll put it in the next game I make. It was fun. Um, I love making puzzle games. And if anyone's played like anything like Picross before, uh, I've made Picross clones, and I could totally imagine playing that with the screen turned off. It would be frustrating, but it would it, it would be doable, and I think that would be a cool challenge to explore, uh, both as a developer and as a gamer. So the pizzas are here. Uh, I could do questions over pizza, or I could do some questions now if there are any. We've got a small room, so we won't have too many questions. Um. One thing on when you were saying that if you change text of an item and it wouldn't regenerate the um, text, well, the speech for the text mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. is it possible just to make a global, like an easy game object that would just get all game objects with that script included mm-hmm. and force them to regenerate? Yes. Okay. Um, one of the good things about the Unity editor is that you can do basically anything and I don't know. Our, our philosophy at the, at the last place was it can be slow as hell because it's only going to affect us. So if you need to do a ton of reflection in that scene and grab every object of a certain type and check some value on like on disk, just do it. Even if it runs like every time that thing uh, is active, because that typically is how uh, these editor things work. Is like this will be there's a lot of script running here constantly firing just to see if this thing's selected and if it's valid and what its setting should be. This is running every time this thing re-renders. And it's really slow, but it doesn't matter. 
is it's not going to be in the final game, and it doesn't really affect me. And as soon as that thing loses focus, I've got it up for this demo, uh, it no longer runs its code. So if you have a really heavy task to do after you, say, hit generate text-to-speech, yeah, by all means, just let it run and, and regenerate everything. Um, you can even do stuff like uh, in the projects I'm working on, Faithful Heart, um, I basically, before I build it, I open a bunch of scenes and turn things on and off and save the scenes. So you could, if you really needed to, iterate through every scene in your game and regenerate everything, um, which is pretty cool. Sorry, non-technical question. Sure. Is this the sort of uh, product that's used for building games like Wolfenstein or Odyssey reference? Um, it is made for bigger games than you'd think. Um, I don't know how much of a game you are, but Hearthstone is a pretty big game. It's made by Blizzard. That's made in Unity. Uh, there is this weird thing with using Unreal and Unity in that they are both you know, they're proprietary tool and they're, they're good at doing a thing. If you don't do a lot of customization, they feel like a game that's come out of one of those engines. Um, so a lot of cheaper games, people will go, oh, that's a Unity game. Because someone hasn't had the money or the budget to sort of redo their UI and so all the stock assets feel very Unity, or the Unity feels very Unity, uh, the, the um, mechanics feel very Unity. Uh, Unity pretty much has a monopoly in that market. Unreal's doing well, um, but they got in at the right time and changed their pricing model, so this is pretty pervasive and it is everywhere. But if you're looking at AAA studios, most of them will license an engine. Uh, so if we look at like the Battlefield series, for example, they license Frostbite from the makers of Frostbite, and they'll work with them to then customize it for their game, um, and they'll typically like make their own rendering and stuff on top. Um, so we don't know about Fortnite. That's what happened with Fortnite. Um, Epic were trying to sell their engine again, so they made uh, a game. The game failed, and they were able to pivot and change their game, um, and it ended up blowing up. But the actual reason they made that game was just so they could then sell their engine to other AAA developers and be like, "Here's what you can, here's what you can do with it." Um, so the market is pretty diverse, but if you're not making a game for like a quarter of a million dollars, you're probably using Unity or Unreal. Those AAA titles like they all have their own editors that they've made and that kind of thing? Or have they that, that would have to, yeah, that would have to. Um, I know Super Giant Games is an indie game studio. Um, made Bastion, which is probably my favourite all-time indie game because it was like the first one that I played and it got me into it. It's my gateway game. Um, and they wrote all their own engines and their own tooling. Um, there's a really good documentary about theirs and their games. And in the hindsight, it looks sort of stupid. Like, like why spend time making tooling when you can just make games? That is my argument. Like, like, yeah, sure, if you want to roll your own engine, do it. But, like, they've done that for me. Um, but there are teams out there that do roll their own editors and their own um, graphics pipelines and, and stuff like that. Um, Unity's starting to add the capability for you to... to um, write your own scripting pipelines because that's probably another really big drawback when you're making big games is you have to customize the hell out of when things render, how they render, um, and you don't have a lot of control on systems like this, which is why big games typically tend to roll their own. I love making tools for making games. It's so much fun. <laughs> I, my tools folder is huge. Um, I think there's also an element of... Uh, I think there's two elements. I think obviously it's game developers, but I don't know. We think we can do it better than everyone else because it's a pretty hard industry. We think we're pretty good programmers. I think we overestimate our skill a bit. But the other one that I noticed when I, I started doing full stack and so we'll do a lot of front end development, when I would get stuck with things and downs, I just Google it. Right? 
But for me, that was like such a foreign concept because in games, people didn't share or they share so far after the fact because the text would be obsolete that the learnings are still valuable, but the actual uh, technical revolution there uh, is maybe not relevant anymore. Um, that's starting to change a bit with, with shaders as, as we get these customizable shader pipelines, but I feel like with games, we're constantly reinventing the wheel every time. And so part of that is we have to write our tooling every time. Uh, whereas if I have a problem with Angular, I, there's like a million free articles on how to solve something in Angular. Uh, I won't get that for how do I solve physics collision problem X in product Y. Um, is that just because it's so competitive? Yeah, I think so. And a lot of companies tend to treat their code like trade secrets. But again, they're doing what everyone else is doing. It's just they're not sharing, so they don't know. Um, so the, the, build, the build pipeline here is a good example. I'm sure every company that, Uni, uh, that uses Unity makes their own build pipeline. It's not really a trade secret, right? At the end of the day, the implementation is slightly different. If they shared, maybe they wouldn't have to waste the time doing it. But instead, we spend I spend so much time on it. So I constantly tweak it. It's so much fun. Uh, yeah, I can move stuff to remote servers, I can zip it, I can delete it, I can do all sorts. So uh, I think there's just an element of that as well, just having to do it because there's no no other resources out there. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you.